0: Tonight we're having a barbie, which is what you guys in America refer to as a
1: barbecue. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say. Yo! Welcome to episode 128 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about Australia. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash benchmark. And yes, we are starting with a review today from the UK five-star by Bristol Cyclist Superb Podcast. I'm a very keen amateur cyclist in the UK that is now in my second season of crit and road racing although I've been doing sportifs for several years. I've been using a reputable local cycling coach for a number of years too and the information in this podcast has reinforced what I've been doing. I recently listened to the How to Crush Crits feature which was superb. I'm hoping it will help me get some points as a cat three this year thank you very much for taking the time out to write that review good luck this year rocking those crits and your road races i'm sure you'll be happy when winter leaves the uk if you do like the show though i would love a review on either itunes or stitcher because five stars makes me go Thank you very much. Now, let's get to the performance probe and probe number one, a review of nutritional intervention on delayed onset muscle soreness. This review is focused on the effect of nutritional intervention on delayed onset muscle soreness aka DOMS and further referenced from this point on as DOMS. In general, high-force eccentric contractions and or unaccustomed exercises result in DOMS attributed to reduction in performance such as muscle strength and range of motion for both athletes and non-athletes. Nutritional intervention is one of the preventative measures or therapeutic ways to reduce DOMS. Previous research studies have suggested the following Following nutrition intervention caffeine, omega 3 fatty acids, taurine, polyphenols, glutamine, Panax, ginseng, and liprienol nutritional intervention with these nutrients before and after exercise were reported to be effective in reducing DOMS. These nutritional interventions have also been reported to affect inflammatory responses and oxidative stress leading to DOMS reduction. However, other studies have reported that these nutritional interventions have no effect on DOMS and it is suggested that intake of proper nutrition intervention can effectively reduce DOMS after exercise and quickly help an athlete return to exercise or their training program. The most lifestyle accessible study which could be closely aligned with cycling type strength training was a caffeine related study called the effect of caffeine ingestion on delayed onset muscle soreness. Of course it was. It looked at caffeine's potential role in reducing perception of pain and soreness during exercise and the effects of caffeine on DOMS. Nine low-caffeine-consuming males were randomly assigned to ingest either caffeine or a placebo one hour before completing a singular strength exercise. They received caffeine in proportion to their weight with an average dose of 385 milligrams, which is about two and a half cups of coffee or just under two no-dose pills. They then performed four sets of 10 bicep curls on a preacher bench, Finishing with a one max effort set over the next few days the participants returned to the lab each day and reported their levels of soreness. Starting on day two the caffeine group reported significantly lower levels of soreness compared to the placebo group. The difference continued each subsequent day but was most drastic on days two and three. Soreness to touch was also drastically different. The placebo group experienced significantly more pain when their biceps were touched up to two days after the test in addition to the findings on muscle soreness the study also found the usual performance enhancing effects of caffeine the caffeine group performed an average of 50 percent more reps on the max effort set of bicep curls and even reported less fatigue afterwards So this does show that a dose of five milligrams per kilogram of body weight was effective in improving performance and reducing soreness, but Coffee may not be the preferred delivery method here. Some studies have shown that coffee is a far less effective way of ingesting caffeine compared to pills. So caffeine supplementation may not be as simple as downing a cup of joe before you head to the gym. You may want to opt for an energy drink or a pill instead. Not only do the results of this study help you with the actual DOMS themselves, but definitely the main reason why you would want to reduce DOMS is so you can get back to training earlier, do more sessions, or you want to be able to do sessions at 100% from the second and third day when normally DOMS is at its strongest and can affect the level that you're able to achieve in whatever training you're doing at that point. And while this was a super small sample and they were working on arms, the intervention is totally manageable in everyday life. Even if the caffeine intake is quite high at 5 milligrams per kilogram per day, 1 hour before and 4 days after exercise. If you can handle that much caffeine, you don't have much to lose by trying it. The second probe is an article called What's Better for You, High Volume or High Intensity Training. It's an article on Joe Friel's blog and it does answer that question of should you focus primarily on training volume or intensity and how do you know when to do either? We get some help through this article with a study by someone called Gazkill and Associates, which was done in 1999 and One of the reasons why this study is interesting is because it's a long study. It's done over two years, which is a very, very rare thing in sports science. The sports scientists from the University of Montana manipulated the training of 14 amateur cross-country skiers for those two years. In year one, the athletes trained about the same with around 600 accumulated annual hours, which is about 12 hours per week. Of the 600, about 17% was at or above lactate threshold. That's around 2 hours per week on average. At the end of year 1, the 14 skiers' pre-tests, post-tests and race results were compared and The seven athletes who improved the most were assigned to a high responders group and the others who showed little improvement in year one were assigned to a low responders group. Then in year two, the high responders continued with the same training as in year one, while the low responders reduced their volume by 22% to about 470 annual hours or around nine and a half hours. Hours per week, the low responders also doubled their total training time above lactic threshold to around 35%, which is going from two hours to three hours per week. The high responders who kept their training the same in year one had no significant changes in test or race results by the end of year two. The low responders following year 2 had significant improvements in their VO2 max, lactic thresholds and race results compared to with year 1. They rose to the performance level of the high responders. So what lessons can we learn from this study? The first is that the response to any training program varies considerably between individuals. In sports science this is referred to as the principle of individuality and in this example some of the athletes responded well to high volume while others to high intensity. Another lesson is that training the same way year after year produces about the same results. Something needs to change to improve. So change should be either in volume or in high intensity but it's a hard question to answer without knowing more about an individual so in general the newer you are to your sport the more likely you are to respond better to volume increases experienced athletes those who have been in their sport for several years around three years or more will usually respond to an increase in the volume of intensity done at or above lactic threshold. So Joe goes on to say that determining how to train is often a matter of trial and error. And while I kind of do agree with him, the nuts and bolts of this episode may give you a different perspective on actually how to decide whether you should do more volume or more intensity. This, of course, is when you're either moving between phases or when you're looking at the bigger picture, you're plateauing. And so you need to switch up training somehow because you're just not getting the adaptions that you were once getting. Joe also does mention this outside of training stress. So everything outside of training can accumulate stress as well, which can have an effect on training, which is also something we're going to talk a little bit about in the Nuts and Bolts. So I'm going to leave it right there.
0: I think there's uh, there's levels of how analytical you want to get.
1: This is Alan Cousins.
0: And I think even, even if you're not going to that extreme where you're looking at things, uh, you know, on a statistical level, just having that mindset uh, where, you know, where you're looking at cause and effect and sort of uh, approaching coaching, from that angle, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of benefit to that.
1: He does take coaching and data to the extreme. Well, extreme may be the wrong word to use here, but he definitely does take his numbers seriously, and he takes coaching to a place that many don't or won't. Today, we are going to take a look at the numbers, the numbers that tell you if your training is working. And what do I mean by working? I mean, are you getting the performance results you want throughout the season? Alan has developed a great way to answer this question. But first, who is Alan Cousins? Alan is an exercise physiologist, a coach, and a self-proclaimed mad scientist for endurance athletes, and I tend to agree with him. After spending many hours devouring his writings on endurance coaching, I could see only one problem – He's a triathlete and a triathlon coach. And while I do always take the opportunity to poke fun at triathletes, this time I have a legitimate problem. Alan's ideas are excellent, but he focuses on applying them in his world, which is mostly long course triathlon, which even in Alan's words is boring as a coach and as
0: someone who... Who loves, uh, you know, looking at the various aspects of exercise physiology? It really is a sport where, you know, the the most aerobically fit athlete and ten, tends to win.
1: So I saw no other way than to convince him to come on the show and go through his ideas about benchmarking and forecasting performance for cyclists instead of triathletes. But first, let's discuss this idea of benchmarking that Alan has developed. If you want to find out what your adaptions are, traditionally you have to do some testing. And testing is a great way to find this out, but testing is hard physically and mentally. I've had athletes that perform well with tests, some that perform poorly with tests, and others that have just flat out refused to do them. So it's not a foolproof way of getting the data that we need to make the calls on what to do next in training. I never thought that there was a better way to gauge performance changes until I came across the work of Alan Cousins, specifically this idea of benchmarking a season to gauge performance in other ways than just tests. The challenge for cycling, though, is the complexity of each discipline. Triathlon is a steady-state effort. Cycling, on the other hand, becomes more difficult in trying to put together a benchmarking system for individual athletes.
0: I'm friends with a few uh, pro cyclists out here, and uh, one of the comments that they've made, you know, after kind of getting to know how how I do things. Uh, is with particular reference to, uh, you know, to, to the performance modeling metrics that Training Peaks uses, the chronic training load and, and those sorts of things. And you get a real mixed bag as to folks who have performed well when their CTL was high versus others who have said that they didn't perform well, uh, you know, According to their own sort of standards, I guess when uh, when they had really high kind of training load levels, you know, so I, I think that speaks a lot to what you're talking about with uh, cycling being more complicated. It's not all based around those aerobic efficiency metrics that, uh, that that long course triathlon is is very much focused on. You know, for for Ironman guys, when those power, heart rate, pace to heart rate numbers are high. They're going to perform relatively well, uh, whereas it's not always the case for cyclists who, uh, their event is much more focused on particular selections, you know, particular times in the race where things happen that they have to be specifically prepared for. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that's a fundamental difference between the two sports, even though they look similar on paper, um, you know, physiologically. Uh, cycling is, is a whole lot more complex than, uh, than long-course triathlon.
1: A metric that Alan developed is called the VO2max score, and this can also be used for cycling. It doesn't tell the entire story of what's happening with an athlete, but it definitely has its place in a cycling benchmarking system. But before I go on, what is the VO2max score, and how is it a valuable benchmark for cycling training?
0: Yeah, the, uh, the, the VO2max score... That I came up with really is uh, it, it's a, a measure of aerobic efficiency, and it kind of a, a long, long time ago, even before Training Peaks started tracking uh, their their efficiency factor, which is their their measure of that you know power divided by heart rate. Um, I was tracking that with the athletes that I was working with. And, uh, you know, I, I found it a really useful metric that tended to track very well with how they were doing in their races. And, uh, you know, obviously the, the the issue with that is that athletes have very different heart rate numbers, you know, max heart rate numbers, training heart rate numbers. So, so you're not readily able to compare between athletes when you're using that benchmark. So I took it a a step further and uh, kind of factored in some of the work done by Jack Daniels with his, uh, his VDOT scores to come up with an approximation of the athlete's VO2 max from these, these power to heart rate and pace to heart rate numbers. So that's, that's essentially what the VO2 score is. I, I make some assumptions as far as the economy goes for the athlete um, and then based on... Knowing their heart rate numbers, I, uh, I'm able to extrapolate a, a, an estimation essentially of what their VO2 max is at, at any point in time.
1: Being a formula that you can apply to any ride over 60 to 90 minutes means that you can get a lot of data, which you can then draw some conclusions from, including looking at trends over a season, but mainly in comparison to the training load prescribed to an athlete you might already be seeing how useful it is. I really wanted to get behind what the VO2max scores tells us, but also what it doesn't tell us.
0: I think it's really good for getting a sense of, you know, what that relationship between power and heart rate is. But what it doesn't tell us is how long an athlete is going to be able to hold a given power or heart rate, you know, which is kind of kind of the next level up. And when we're looking at specific demands of specific events, that's kind of where, you know, the next level of metrics comes in and we need to start doing things that are, that are more specific. But, uh, you know, I, I think in terms of just a general marker of how aerobically fit an athlete is, um, if you can get a lot of those data points together, even though there, there might be a, a, a range across a week, when you look at them as a, a large number of data points, there's quite a lot of statistical Consistency between them, and uh, you know, as you said, if you're tracking them along with the training load of the athlete, after a while, you you get a pretty predictable uh, relationship between those two things, which is really useful for uh, identifying what performance level you can expect at various points through the season.
1: Forecasting is something that Alan began to touch on there, and this is something that I want to talk about a little bit later. But he brought up the idea of next level metrics and what he's talking about there is the relationship between intensity factor and duration. Alan discusses this in detail in an article he wrote for Training Peaks called Further or Faster, When to Go from Base to Build, which is another way that you can see why benchmarking is so useful. In the article, he explains the use of the peak power curve to examine a rider's readiness to move on from a base phase to a build phase. And quoting directly from the article, the benchmarks are presented in terms of intensity factor, IF, essentially a percent of functional threshold for each duration in minutes as the absolute power numbers will vary depending on the fitness of the athlete and how high his or her functional threshold power might be. However, irrespective of absolute fitness, endurance remains a high priority for Ironman athletes of all levels. For this reason, I ask all my Iron Distance athletes to be able to complete a long ride at a rather high percentage of FTP before concluding that a sufficient level of basic endurance for Ironman has been built on. He goes on to cite a real-world example from two athletes with a functional threshold power of 300 watts, where he uses a 2.5 and a a 5-hour cutoff line at 273 watts, which is 300 watts times 0.91 intensity factor and 255 watts which is 300 times 0.85 intensity factor respectively to know what to do next let's take it back for a second though and get alan's take on this metric yeah
0: yeah i think uh you know that that's that sort of fatigue curve or mean max power curve concept where you start to plot the athlete's power numbers across different durations and you start to get an idea of you know, the relative endurance or power of that athlete.
1: The example for this benchmark is for long course triathletes. I was interested in how this could apply to an elite cyclist. Would it be the case of using the numbers already given or working out completely new ones?
0: Uh, I mean, honestly, if I was working with an elite cyclist, I'd, I'd use those same, uh, same durations that I use with with a long course triathlete, you know, all the way from very short durations of a minute all the way up to, you know, their, their five hour best. And I, I think probably for, uh, you know, for elite cyclists, they're going to have more, uh, more of those long duration, strong effort numbers than what, uh, what a lot of Ironman athletes will, you know, just, just by nature of hard group rides and that sort of thing. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, really it's the relationship between all of those numbers and, and you, you want to have, you know, as many areas of the curve covered as possible, you know, to, to, to get a true, uh, sense of what that athlete's curve looks like. I think the curve kind of develops over the course of the season, you know, in, in the beginning before your endurance is established and before you really want to do those five hour rides. It might be a a three or four point curve and then, you know, as you build in those strong best effort uh, kind of longer duration, duration tests or challenge workouts, you you start to kind of reveal a little bit more of the curve and, and, you know, understand, uh, understand the athlete a little bit better in terms of their long endurance.
1: How does he decide when to introduce certain markers, though? There must be an art behind knowing what markers to use and when. Or is it just watching the numbers carefully?
0: Uh, I think a lot of it, you know, in terms of when we introduce those longer markers, really has to do with how much base the athlete has at that point. You know, and uh, if an athlete's training... Ten hours a week. Say, you know, I'm I'm not going to have them go out and do a, a best five hour uh, effort, you know, because it's just going to represent too much of a load and it's going to completely destroy them, you know. So I think that has more to do with with what tests I'm including. It's one of the tough things for age group athletes because typically even Ironman athletes are going to be limited to maybe shorter duration tests um, you know in terms of best effort so we're kind of the you know the lower the training load of the athlete the more we're guessing in a sense on on what those those longer numbers are going to be through, through a lot of the season.
1: The benchmarking for each athlete will vary depending on where they are in their development and how they progress during the season. It was interesting to hear that the majority of time is spent chasing aerobic efficiency and using the VO2 max score to measure this.
0: For a lot of the athletes that I work with, you know, we're, we're doing base work and, and we're focused on that, that aerobic efficiency number, that VO2 score, for a, a large portion of the season um, you know, and, and as I've said, for Brian Man athletes that number tends to correlate pretty well with, with their race performance. So, you know, I, I'm I'm maybe only starting that specific endurance stuff uh two or three cycles out from from their key rates. Um you know, for more advanced athletes or for athletes from sports that are, are more complex we might have more of those cycles uh, you know, that, that are focused on different, different areas of the curve. And in that case, I would start that sort of benchmarking uh, earlier in the season.
1: The next step in planning then is looking at how the athlete responds to training. In Allen's terms, it's looking at whether an athlete is a fast, average or slow responder. I'll let Alan explain it further. But basically, it's quantifying the relationship between the training load an athlete is doing and the performance output from that specific amount of input.
0: It, it's interesting because when I, I first uh, first started coaching and, you know, first started, uh, you know, being being an athlete myself, I, I came from, from a swim background and, you know, we, we was very goal oriented and, and kind of wanted to... To work my way up the ranks, I, I sort of, uh, I had this hope, I guess, that genetics was uh, not a major, major player in, in endurance sports, you know. And, and I, I still stand by that, that viewpoint to a certain extent, but since I've started tracking those relationships between, you know, a given athlete's training load that they're putting in and the performance that they're getting... It's hard to deny that there's there's definite genetic uh, influences there, you know, where some folks get a whole lot more performance.
1: As a coaching tool, this is brilliant. Not only from a coach's perspective, though, knowing what to expect from training as an athlete is valuable as well. Part of the beauty of this is how the numbers used to finding out the type of responder you are can also be used in forecasting your performance over a season. It goes a long way in answering the common question of where could I end up fitness-wise this season. Alan brings up a great point here regarding how this information also affects coaching strategies, specifically how aggressive the training load is in comparison to a person's response and their personality.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think it, it really helps too in terms of how aggressive you are as a coach because um, I've found, you know, some level of fairness there in that those folks who tend to respond really well and really quickly also tend to be the most fragile athletes. So, uh, you know, when, when you start to identify the, the athlete type I often find myself backing off a little bit if if I identify that athlete as a really fast responder to training. I'm I'm liable to be a little bit more careful with uh, just how quickly I ramp that athlete or how aggressive I am with uh, with their training.
1: This is all about protecting athletes from themselves. Learning as a coach when to hold an athlete back is one of the main jobs of a coach.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. You know and. Uh, for that type of athlete often it's job one because they they're very motivated they recognize that they're somebody who could be at the very top of the sport and they're always always sort of uh sort of pushing you know so for that type of athlete a lot of what I do is tugging on those reins and you know holding them back until the time is
1: right If you are the type of person that is highly driven not only in cycling but in other aspects of your life there is an inherent level of stress that accompanies maximizing your potential in all areas of your life Alan did his master's thesis on the relationship between outside stress and the adaptions made in training so I asked Alan to talk about what he knows about this relationship
0: It's definitely a huge factor you know, and uh, it's interesting because I, I obviously deal with not just uh, you know high-level elite athletes, but I'm dealing with working athletes as well from from all kinds of professions. You know, doctors and lawyers and uh, folks who uh, you know have have a, an atypical sort of sort of work week with a, a lot of working hours and a lot of stress. And in dealing with those folks, some of them can get to the point where their training response almost dials down to zero, um, you know, at, at times of high stress, you know, at which point we just kind of have to shut things down sort of thing for a, for a period of time. It's a really critical area and it's something that isn't readily, uh, you know, studied when uh, when a lot of the research is done around elite athletes who, you know, have a lot more latitude with their time. But, but certainly for, for working age groupers, it's, it's a critical concern. It's easy to say that it's uh, you know something that needs to be addressed. Um, there, there's a lot of kind of social pressures that a lot of these folks are under where that's not easy to, to do so um, you know so often it's the training that needs to be adjusted in order for them to, to adapt to it and, and in order for them to get a response from the training that they do.
1: This, of course, can lead to trouble with adaptions, as Alan mentioned. You can spot this when a VO2 max score is starting to take a nosedive when CTL is increasing. I asked Alan why this happens. Yeah, I mean, well,
0: that, that relationship is really the essence of that training response. You know, so if you're, if you're seeing that training load is going up, and those power to heart rate numbers that are going down, then, uh, you know, if, if, if that's more than kind of, you know, one or two rogue data points, it's a good indication that the athlete may be entering into, you know, some, some failing adaptation. And, you know, at that point, we might want to consider changing the training emphasis and sharpening up for an event or, or resting, you know, depending on, uh, depending on sort of, you know, what else is going on around their training. But, you know, certainly there's a pattern of diminishing returns and there's, uh, you know, there, there comes a point if you keep doing the base work for a long, long period of time where things can, can start to head south. Um, you know, the, the adaptation reserves, for lack of a better term, are, are used up. And, uh, you know, at that point, Really, got a you really got a race. You know your your aerobic benefit from that from that build is done, and uh, you know it's time to change emphasis and uh, and try a little bit of harder stuff sharpen the, the systems up a little bit and, and then race.
1: If you are going to take a rest then, maybe think about Alan's approach, which is having a really good break from your sport specific training. This, of course, is a sacrifice to the fitness that you built up over an entire season. But knowing this is part of the process, I asked Alan how he sells this idea to his athletes.
0: It's, uh, it, it's difficult, uh, you know, particularly with with, uh, with certain types of athletes. And uh, I think that the only reason that they buy into that is if they've been working with me for a, a season and, and they have a really good result. And you know, hopefully at that point they're sort of a, of the mindset, "Well, this guy knows what he's talking about," you know. And uh, I'll act a little bit on blind faith at this point and uh, and and do what he says, you know. But it's it's really really tough if an athlete does have a good result. To to discourage them from continuing to want to race, you know they they recognise their fitness is at an all time high, and uh, more than anything, they just want to keep keep those races coming and and uh, you know keep getting those good results. But uh, it's uh, you know it's a, it's a dangerous pattern to fall into to try to try to extend that peak for too long. That's one of the one of the things that I think is difficult to, uh, to keep, uh, going with the athlete as well, you know, after I've worked with athletes over a period of seasons, that draw towards continual racing becomes stronger and stronger, you know, and, uh, it's a constant
1: battle finally alan is an active writer on all topics in endurance coaching if anything we spoke about interests you or you want alan's take on other topics this is where you can find out more
0: yeah um i have uh, i have a lot of articles on endurance corner which is uh which is our our coaching business so uh, www.endurancecorner.com um, is, is probably a good good resource, and then I have a little bit more detailed stuff on my own website, uh, which is uh, alancousins.com, um, and there's a, there's a menu down the side where you can you can find a, a whole bunch of uh, information pertaining to different different topics, um, and there's also a mailing list too. So if, if folks want to sign up for the mailing list, they'll uh, they'll get notified when new new stuff comes out.
1: Alrighty, let's get to the tech hacks and products section And this week it's a hack about making any glove work with touchscreens It's a hack that is super handy, no pun intended For winter and also for full-fingered glove-wearing MTB peeps The video shows you how to make any full-fingered glove touchscreen-friendly. Normally, it doesn't work because fabric blocks the static from your finger, so you need a way to channel that static electricity so the touchscreen works, and this is done with either conductive thread or a product called NanoTips. You add either products to your finger and thumb so that you can get to your phone with gloves on. I definitely think this is a red-hot tip that's going to save you a bunch of stuffing around. It's not a performance tip but it will definitely help you out when you're wearing those clumsy gloves and now that quote from the top of the show it's Cannondale Garmin's Nathan Haas and our favorite pro pillow hipster Alex Howes going through the same classic Australian slang nicknames Barbie and of course dangerous animals that is a total cliche but we all love to talk about And that's it. You have been listening to the Semi Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com benchmark to find any links used in this week's episode. From there, you can click on any coaching link on the site or visit semiprocycling.com forward slash coaching for more information on our coaching packages. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into.